Hey folks, this is Boris Shabess, and you're listening to The Sequel Show. If you're new to the show, this is a space I use to talk about all things data and data-driven operations with some of my favorite people from across the industry. Some of these conversations are one-on-one, sometimes we do group conversations, and even sometimes we get into hearty debate about the role of data teams and data technology and all the changes going on in our industry. This week's episode is really a great one for anyone looking to get into data, or I might even say, try to improve their career. I got to speak with uh, Jessica Cherney, who is a senior data analyst at Ironclad. And we talked about a whole bunch of things, how she got to work at Ironclad, how she ended up in her role as like a single person data team. And then before that, how she even decided to study data science instead of computer science when she was in university. She also created her own community of women in data called Data Angels and is really a great example of building a personal presence on the internet while furthering your career. It's really fun and an inspiration. So I think you'll see a lot more from Jessica in the future. All right, Jessica, tell tell folks who you are. Yeah, we have met before once, I think during one census call. I forget when. It was you recommending Fivetran to me, but <laughs> that's it. But your recommendation went far. I did implement Fivetran at Ironclad. Oh, that's good to know. After we acquired a certain company and uh, merged their data into our data warehouse. So thank you for that, Boris. But yeah, I'm Jessica. I'm a senior data analyst at um, a startup called Ironclad that specializes in all things digital contracting platforms. I was a one-woman data team for two years up until recently. Now I've been at Ironclad for two and a half years and have a team of three. So I've seen Ironclad grow from Series B to Series D and a lot of fun product analytics along the way. So it's a yeah. little bit about me. And then outside of work, I lead a Slack community for women in data called Data Angels. It's around 500 women. So yeah, we can chat a little bit about that later. We will chat about both of those. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, actually, which came first, working at Ironclad or Data? Working at Ironclad. I only started Data Angels in August of 2020, and I started at Ironclad in July 2019. So about a year apart. Okay. And obvious question, but like, how did you end up in this role of, you know, data, data team of one? Yeah. So in college, I started as a CS major, computer science. Didn't really love the software engineering world or path for me. I just felt like it wasn't my jam. But found that once I switched over to economics and statistics, that was more... I still wanted to stay technical, but apply my technical ability to economics problems or just you know business problems. So I decided to take a mix of computer science, economics, and stats classes. Knowing fully well that eventually, before I graduated, there was going to be a data science major. And someone told you that? There was a data science class, a very intro class. It was called Data 8 at Berkeley. It's, it's pretty big now. It's one of the most popular classes at Berkeley. There was some talk about there being a data science major as an alternative to the computer science major. And it didn't actually happen until my senior year last semester. But knowing that I had all the coursework for the data science major, I could easily uh, like submit a change of major to the registrar's office because I had 
that mix kind of Frankenstein my major together and became a data scientist. <laughs> Did you have an advisor all. who was like telling you this is going to work? Like there was, there was yeah. a preliminary data science advising office. I would say, you know, it's going to be a mix of these stats classes, these computer science classes, and these economic class. Well, you can apply data science as a specialty to any slew of three classes. There was, sure. you know, it's called a domain emphasis. My domain emphasis was economics, but there was 40 different domain emphases you can apply, like theater and sociology. So because I was double majoring in stats and economics already, I had all the stats coursework. Because I was a computer science major my first year at Berkeley, I had all the CS coursework. So it was all really kind of like the stars aligning moment. And that's how I got my so, data science major. Jessica, when I was in college, and this might be peculiar to me, but I remember, well, in Canada, first of all, you don't get to change your major easily. I mean, you can move, but you declare, there's no declaring later. You just apply into a program and then that's your program. But you can always, I mean, you can technically change. But I know that had I told my parents, I'm actually going to change from this like well-known degree to this brand new degree, they would have had some qualms, I'll say. Did you have to contend with that when you're like, it's a brand new concept. It's great. Trust me. This is what I want to get on my diploma. No. I feel like after a certain point, my parents kind of just trusted me. Okay. They were really involved in my like, upbringing from elementary school to middle school. And then they realized, okay, like Jessica's got it under control. Like she's doing well in her classes. Pretty fine. Like I just became so self-motivated internally because they were already motivating me or, you know, pressuring me from a young age. <laughs> and I kind of just like, okay, this is the norm. This is how <laughs> how you grow up and eventually just became just like innate. They knew that it was a technical major and that it related to computer science, which they understood. And that, you know, the jobs out of college could make you a decent living. So they're like, okay, we trust you. That's fine. So did someone at Berkeley make you think this? is interesting. Like I understood that you were not into computer science as much as you were hoping to be. Yeah. But what was there a professor that was like, this is the future. And like, Jessica, you'll see, this is like, you should get into this. Like who enticed you? Yeah. I honestly thought it was the original enticing was because it was an alternative to the computer science major. And I was like, ah, like I could, these, these are kind of like cousin majors. I can just do this. But there was a really amazing professor, two professors, John De Niro and professor Ani Adhikari. They were amazing. They led, they co-built this first intro to data course. Mm. It's called Data 8, maybe like Data Fundamentals. Don't know what the official name is. But the way they taught was just so enticing and made it so new and fresh. This was like one of the first years that they were doing and piloting this course. So it just felt like you were on the edge of the new Mm. frontier. And I thought, wow, this is enticing. Like you can still use Python in a non-software engineering environment. You can use it to look at trends and data and cholera in the 19, 1850s in London. Like this is how, <laughs> that was one of the first textbook or virtual textbook assignments. And I was like, whoa, this is really cool. <laughs> so yeah, I thought it was really applicable. That's an interesting trait, right? Computer science is not that old of a discipline, but technically, you know, it's, it's got a good 50 years now plus. And so when you're in school for it, And yeah, I have an undergrad in computer science and it's hard to get it to have that feeling of cutting edge until you get to like graduate school. I hadn't thought of that, that data science by being a slight mod on some of the same concepts, but applied in a very new field felt cutting edge, Yeah, which you would have gotten maybe if you'd gone to graduate school, but to get that in undergrad is rare. 
So I will counter that point is that data science has also been around for a long time with the stats, like statistics as a, as a statistics major. Is older than computer science. Yeah. yeah older. Sure. It's super old. It's and 100%. the intro classes for data science are all basically rebranded stats classes, but using modern tooling like Jupyter Notebooks and some schools might use other notebook technologies and maybe DeepNote, but we use Jupyter Notebooks. Jessica, in my day, it was like yeah. SPSS. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is old. <laughs> not, not to bag on that, but, <laughs> but it, it, when you saw a Jupyter Notebook being executed in class, like it looked beautiful, though the way the visuals represented themselves in a notebook. It looked like really beautiful. And I've never had a virtual textbook like this before. So mm. me as an 18 year old, I was like, whoa, this is, this is neat. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I'm reminiscing. I, I, I loved that moment. And, um, hey, I, I mean, look, <laughs> most of undergrad by unfortunate design, right? Those professors for them, this is really boring. They don't yeah. really want to teach the undergrad class anyway. Yeah. The, the, it's hard for them to make it feel fun and new. And so it's interesting that you're right. The technology, even a notebook by being this kind of textbook that's alive was completely different than what we had yeah. before. I also will say that another big thing that drew me to the data science major specifically, not field, was that it was so much more collaborative than the CS degree program in undergrad. Mm. Like the first year of classes for computer science majors it's very competitive and basically they're trying to weed you out and only the fittest survive and there's a gpa cutoff and it's just a lot of pressure for oh, someone who's never coded before you kind of come in a little bit with a disadvantage and you only have three classes to prove your worth as a cs major or not it gets kind of crazy you have to get a b plus and high or higher oh i had no <laughs> idea just, yeah data science there was no requirements it just or you know you had to pass but it just wasn't like that at all. It felt very welcoming. And huh. I felt like I had, and I did well in it. Like I, I, I really liked it. So anyways, I'm boxing poetic. About no, that's it, interesting. But. That's another difference between schooling, right? So mm -hmm. I think we had a very aggressive cutoff to get into my program, but from high school in. Mm. And then once you were in, you could get, I think, a B. <laughs> I think it was fine. Yeah, to get a B yeah. in computer science and then yeah. get better over time yeah. because the cutoff was in high school, which is the difference between having the, I guess, late binding declaring of major versus. Early Did you go to school major. in McGill or university? I went Toronto to a university or? called Waterloo. Uh, near oh, Waterloo. Toronto. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Other, uh, that's awesome. With all the co-ops. Exactly. So my life was, you, you get a very different kind of introduction to the real world because you get all these, you know, you, undergrad is basically five years instead of four and you do eight semesters of school like everybody else and six semesters of work and then no summers, like no, no time off. So it's good. You make money and you get a much more real world programming experience. If you, you know, you just have to get the jobs like they're not given to you, but it allows, I think it's, it works well as a combo because it means the school can focus a lot more on the hard theoretical aspects of computer science. And because of co-op, you're going to have practical experience. So the, I think it's a great program. The school can be less like the school can be slightly less vocational in its context. And so my degree is actually a mathematics degree with a computer science major, which is a unique Waterlooism. But I like computer science from the, like I knew, I, I'm with you that computer science, especially in the beginning in school, is not enjoyable in many ways. And I don't know if there are universities that do a better job of making sure people stay attracted to it. And I think a lot of us stayed in it because we had this like childhood passion for computers and programming them. Mm -hmm. And that 
kind of helps you get through the really hard gauntlet that is computer science programs. Totally, totally. Yeah, well, actually, I wonder, you know, everyone talks about this, right, in our field, not, not across all of tech, right, which is how do we make sure there's a pipeline of people who want to join the field? And so it's interesting to think that you applied into computer science, got in, and then I'm sure could have graduated from that program and chose not to, right? And on the one hand, I could see that as like you found your truer, you know, passion, which is great. Mm -hmm. Another way to think about it might be that computer science is failing people by being unenticing or unattractive or uncollaborative. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think it at its core computer science is uncollaborative. I just think it's really hard for a big public school to support how big the interest is in computer science at Berkeley, public school problems. And yeah, it's, it's more of a resource constraint as opposed to a problem inherent in the field, I think. So I see. just wanted to caveat that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fair point. Berkeley starting computer science class must be massive. Yeah. Yeah. I think our intro classes are now 2000 people. When I was there, it was 1600 and we don't even have capacity to even include anyone in, or everyone in the classes. So it's mostly virtual. Well, now with COVID, you can probably support way more virtual people. But I did not we, realize <laughs> CS 101 is like 2000 people. Well, when I was doing it. So now I think with virtual world and the Zoom world, it might be able to support way more. Who knows? <laughs> Sure, but yeah. you still have to get admitted into Berkeley, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that number has not grown in, in a dramatic way during COVID. Yeah. Okay, and so so you graduated from with a brand new fancy word called data science on your on your diploma, and yeah. then what? So yeah, I double majored in data science and economics, and then I was part of this in undergrad. I was part of this mentorship program called Excel Scholars, and Excel is the VC firm that invested in Ironclad Series A. My mentor, I'll give him a shout out, Mick Kumar, he's the best. He saw that I wanted to do data analytics at a tech company and as opposed to where I was before, which is a consultancy. I didn't like that. <laughs> Big brand consultant. I, I, it wasn't my jam. And he was pretty close to investor that led Ironclad Series A. And he knew that the team was really smart, but low ego. And that investors were jumping at this thing called legal tech. And legal tech is a is tech for in-house legal teams where the legal team is usually underserved in terms of tooling made for them. So uh, that's why people are excited about it. I interviewed and it was the best interview experience I've ever had. And I thought, whoa, I didn't even think contracts was that. They had a good interview experience for the very first data person they ever hired. Or did you replace yeah. them? Yeah. No, I was the very first data hire. So I'll tell you more about that. Yeah. But the interview process was real because... They didn't really know where to fit me in. Um, I was kind of interviewing with everyone from our COO, our CTO, our head of customer success, ops, and an engineer. So I was all over and it was great. Everyone I met was just so interesting and interested in me, like felt like I was really valued. Ate lunch with a bunch of different people that I, I was like, wow, this is startup lunch. This is cool. <laughs> Interacting <laughs> with, like I, I saw everyone at the company at that point. There was only sure. 50 or 60 people. So I was like, wow, this is everyone. Couldn't get, be more excited. They offered me a job to initiate the data analyst role. And I thought it was a really great opportunity. So I started 10 months later after that interview and it's been a great ride ever since. So they, but they interviewed you for this data analyst job. Yeah, yeah. Which none of them had done. Yeah, 
It wasn't very data analytics focused, to be honest, but they were asking me about my past projects with data science consulting and my, they were assessing my leadership and a little bit of PM skills, honestly. Like they had me do design the UX for some website, I think. And how would I design it? Who would I loop in? What, how would I talk to engineering? So it was a little bit of everything. You think looking so, back, they were just, they were just like, let's, we don't have a loop for data. So I let's think just so. Use yeah, some other that's loops. Startup, that's startup life. Like you're oh, just, tell you're me about of, it. Yeah, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> they're more like assessing my character and my potential, I think. And I think my lucky stars every day that Ironclad put a bet on me because I worked really hard to make sure to let them know that it was a good bet. So yeah. Okay. So you became data team of one, now three, which was pretty sweet. Yeah. And a year in, you decided I'm going to create a group to get other people interested in this field. Yes. So I'll tell you how that came about. This is the genesis of data angels is when my coworker always said that I'm a data angel because I previously thought I was, you know, elf on the shelf, like the little elf in Santa's factory delivering the data. But I'm actually like, he rebranded it. He was like, you know, you're a data angel. I'm like, oh, I never thought of it that way. So by the way, it's such a good (laughs) reminder that so many people in a company, it's like you're bringing them something they don't, they don't have. So it's like, it feels like, magic from the heavens oh exactly she brought us the data (laughs) and then eventually they'll get used to it and then they'll just complain when the data is broken but exactly at first it really does feel like this gift yeah yeah so i'll tell you how data angel started so i when i started ironclad my boss was the vp of product Mm -hmm. she had somewhat of a data background but still she was day-to-day vp of product and because I didn't have any senior data analytics leadership day to day, somebody that's five to 10 years older than me still in my like field, she would assign me a couple of people to me and learn best practices from over zoom or just over coffee. And she kicked off a list of three people that I should meet. So I did. And I thought, Hey, like I can do this myself too. Like I can go on LinkedIn or whatever Slack data communities that I am a part of. And talk to people that are either senior data analysts or directors of data, people I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> and I eventually got a list of now, like, I don't know, 25 people at some point. And I would write down their notes and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if there was some informal medium where I can continue the conversation with these people mm. as opposed to through email or through Zoom if I have like a one off question? At the same time, I realized there are a bunch of junior data folks who probably are in the same position as me that also want a similar space. I was talking to my triplet sister, Diana, who is also a data analyst. And we were talking, we're like, why don't we create a community on Slack or some sort of place to answer those two calls to action? Is um, one, a place for senior data folks to mentor others and two, a place for junior folks to kind of find out more about data, dip their toes, have a very safe environment. So that's why we started Data Angels. It was originally Diana and I, and then I eventually started leading it because she was bogged down with awesome interviews. So I've kind of like taken over as the lead for a while, but that's just the genesis for now. I'll pause there. Who's Diana? Diana is my triplet sister. I am a triplet. Um, There's three fraternal girls. Diana is a data analyst by trade, and she will be starting a new role in strategy and operations at a startup called Sprague very soon. Sabrina, they're upstairs my from other my office. Sister, 
Yeah, I know. I'm, she wanted me to tell you. She's like, she says hi. She'll probably see you in mid-January. And Sabrina is a product marketing manager at Google. So we have a lot of different representation in terms of, I guess, stages of companies. Diana previously was at SurveyMonkey and then Coursera. So we were all at big, medium, and then small companies. And now I'm taking Diana to the dark side of startups, which is really the light <laughs> side. Like it, it, It's fun. So those are my sisters. They live upstairs for me. I live in the same building as them. They are roommates. I live with my boyfriend. It's an episode of Friends all the time. Sure. So they're my best friends. So I see them four times a day for snacks, walks, and emotional support. <laughs> that looks very, pre- it sounds very precise. Like four yeah. times. That's not, that's, you're not averaging <laughs> that out. That's like, there's set times. Like, when you... <laughs> whenever I have five minutes left over from a meeting, I will say hi to them if they aren't in meetings themselves. We do a walk at the end of every day, mostly around pack hype. So I, all <laughs> I go to three lunch. of you gravitated to this field, right? <laughs> kind and of. Sabrina is not really, but sure. <laughs> okay. But you all even, she's not so far afield. Yeah. It's yeah. Like she's not a musician. I will also say they were my roommates in college and we all majored at least in one major that overlapped, which was economics. So okay. we okay. were staying close. <laughs> Because I, I was in a conversation not long ago with someone from Spotify on on this podcast, and we were yeah. talking about like is musical taste, you know, nature versus nurture, uh, and obviously there's some combo of the two. That's always the answer. But do you can you do you think you could triangulate why the three of you are interested in, let's say, economics? So I mean, honestly, I think we just wanted general majors that applied to good paying jobs at the end of college. Cause I mean, our parents always were like very concerned about us being stable on our own financially. They're immigrants from Soviet Russia. There was always like that immigrant mentality of like stability, like make sure you do everything you can to provide for yourself out of college. Cause we're not doing that for you. So we were always like motivated by like, how can I accomplish that goal? and make sure my parents don't worry about me after mm-hmm. graduating from college. So did that require convincing when you said I'm going to this company you've never heard of? Honestly, no, because my dad has always been really interested in startups. He had a start when he first came to this country, he would try to get, oh, he, he started as a pizza delivery man and would read books on the floor of either, I think Borders at that time, back when that was around, or Barnes & Noble, one of those. He couldn't afford to buy the books, but he would read C++ and C and programming books to study for interviews before he eventually landed at a startup. I think it was in, honestly, in Petrero Hill. There was his first startup there. So he's always had a knack for startups, and he's loved it. He was part of some startups later on in his career. So he's always had a penchant for it. My mom is definitely more risk-averse and thought, like, big company only, like, this is a risk, but rest assured, again, I think after we were past a certain age, they didn't really worry about us. But when I was 12, I definitely wanted to be a fashion journalist. And my mom was like, no. <laughs> um, but, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, the immigrant parents want you to be a lawyer, an engineer, or a doctor. So <laughs> I had to pick one of those areas. So I'm familiar with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where are your parents' immigrants from? My parents immigrated from Turkey into Canada. Oh, well, the US and then Canada. Yeah. Nice. We've got a little Sephardic going on in there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> nice. Cool. <laughs> yeah. But, and like, they don't, they, they're very far afield from engineering and computer science. So it was, 
in a way, they they also had to somehow trust that I was going to make the right decisions in this within this field. But at least yeah, yeah. it was obvious that I would have income. <laughs> yeah, that and was I will not say, in contention. Yeah. yeah, my parents and grandparents they all have engineering backgrounds. Specifically, I wanted us to go into engineering more so because in Russia there were quotas against what Russian Jews could correct use as their field or, you know, go into the field they could choose. So there was a limit on doctors and business people, but there was an abundance in engineering. So all my family was kind of more biased towards engineering. So when they came here, that's kind of where their community, their immigrant community was focusing on is engineering. So that's kind of why we gravitated to initial computer science. Yeah. By the way, my favorite random fact is that for the, in the great universities, right? In Moscow and St. Petersburg, like for mathematics, there was a different entrance exam for Jews. Yeah. That was hard. Exactly. But of course we somehow still got in. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're literally called, I think, Jewish math problems because there's a different standard and yeah. And like, I have a math degree and went to a really good school and I guess, you know, I'm okay. I'm decent at math. <laughs> and I went to those questions and I was like, this is really hard. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> I was like, I would not have wanted for that to be my entrance exam whatsoever. That's why they immigrated here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like that. So, okay. So hold on. Okay. So, okay. So your siblings and you created this, I mean, amongst many other things that you do together, you decided, all right, let's create a mentorship group. How do you grow it? Like, you know, I think a lot of people are in their careers are, are you thinking of how to grow within a company and like you've actually managed to also grow kind of in public, right? So yes, how yeah. did you do? Honestly, it was pretty organic at first. My sisters and I invited any of our classmates or friends that were already women in data and started to advertise it on our Instagrams and then eventually Twitter. So Twitter was a big one. I had at that point I hadn't tweeted that much since being a senior in high school. So I took a five-year hiatus and then started to really come back on Twitter and, and coronavirus times thought like wow this is a really powerful medium to kind of like build your brand and kind of show what people what you're working on so then we started to talk more about data angels and thought like hey open casting call if you are a woman in data let us know we'll add you and then we kept on growing it from just people talking about it and kind of network effects happening and then started hosting more events i host panels every quarter maybe or so where i coordinate with some senior data folks to talk about their careers or the world of data or, you know, what kind of interview questions can you ask during a data interview? Anyways, so we have these panels that are pretty relevant, have a high TAM and more and more people want to just sign up and join. And then that's how I guess we grew it to around 500 now. We started to advertise on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, things like that. Got it. And there are no, Slack. this is purely a free community, right? There's, yeah. there's only one requirement, I assume. Yeah, just to be a female identifying person interested in data. Got it. And yeah. I'm curious, is this, because that's that you, you have a really interesting data set yeah. <laughs> at your disposal. <laughs> is it broadly speaking, people who are in the field and just continue to want to develop? It's probably like a two thirds split of people already in the field. And then there's a one third of people who are trying to break into it. There's people who have sociology degrees and who have done research who want to break into data because they're already doing data stuff in their research program. There's people who, who are engineers who might want to switch over into data analytics. So I've seen a little bit of both. There's people who are marketing consultants that use data in their day-to-day -day 
life, but aren't data analysts per se by trade. So it's all over the place. Hmm. And since you get to play, you get to play both, right? You get to play mentee and mentor still. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I Uh, actually recruited my data analytics intern from Data Angels and was her mentor for the past six months. Now she's converted to full-time, but still am her mentor. But that's Once a mentee, always a mentee. Yeah, Uh, yeah, uh, exactly. Right? So how do you, for the people who are not in the field, like what do you tell them? Is, Is it more about here are the tools and techniques that you should learn and that'll help you get in? Or do you just kind of point them at interesting places to go work? How, how do you solve the, 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 for the, for the one third that are curious or want to get in? Yeah, there's separate Slack channels relating to tools and job opportunities and blogs to read. So I kind of point, I just paste ones that I find interesting and hope somebody <laughs> reads them. But if for more specific, if somebody actually really wants to and has that intention, they will usually message me or somebody that they see as a mentor and kind of have these one-on-one donuts and talk about all these resources that you can get into. But I usually point them to Kaggle or R has a tidy, a tidy Tuesday thing on GitHub where they post really interesting data sets. And I usually always point them like, hey, pick a data set you're really interested in out of this awesome list. Like every week they post a really interesting data set, like hmm. data on friends episodes or HBCU data or data related to the Tate Museum. So there's literally anything, anything you want to whet your appetite on data-wise, there's a data set on that. And I always tell them, start analyzing that data, look at Kaggle examples and see how you can apply those same data methodologies to that data set that you're actually interested in. Because you don't want to do a project on data that isn't interesting to you. It's just, it's going to just feel like following a recipe that you you won't even eat at the end, you know? Right. So I always point them to those really intro resources as well as modes, a SQL tutorial. So shout out mode, but I always recommend that as well. It's a really good tutorial series. And so when you're like, if you were to look at hiring someone, you would say that was, you know, fresh, you would look for kind of projects they've published around analyzing, you know, TikTok yeah. data sets for the hell of it? Like th- sure, that, that, sure. got it. Or, you know, or if you do, yeah, I love personal projects. If you're doing, if you have the time for that, if you are in a class and you do a data set assignment, that's also good. Although I'll, I'll ding it a little bit because it's part of a class, you know, sure. It's not like a extracurricular type of thing. But yeah, when I look at hiring, I look at basic like data literacy. Can they write SQL and Python? Are they coachable? Do they have the beginnings of good presentation and communication skills? That's about it. <laughs> what do you think they, one of the things I've always thought about for, for people who want to get into a career, right? And I say this, including within a company when you're like a classic version of this is I want to become management, right? Is you don't know what it's actually like, you know, you have this image of it and until you're in it, you actually don't know. So what do you think are misconceptions? Like what, what are things that you would want those people to know before they jump into the field. Like when, if they say, oh, I'm interested in a, a career in data yeah. and you're like. Yeah, it's not all AI and machine learning. Like I love how everyone thinks it's the really sexy, like ML, like like throwing out AI buzzwords and mm-hmm. all these things. It's like, that is not what data is. It's, it's, you're working for a business to hopefully answer strategic questions that are easily consumable, 
easy to consume and understand insights to your stakeholders. It's not like, here's how I communicate the results of my principal component analysis and my K-means clustering model to the CEO. That like doesn't happen, <laughs> at least not in my experience. It's really hard to teach someone that level of statistics to someone who doesn't have that background. So you have to kind of do a very 80-20 approach. Like, no, we just need to look at product penetration rates and like how many people are using the product as opposed to how many bought this product. You know, like something that's more basic, even like bubbling up that level of basic understanding and data insights is way more valuable than something that's esoteric and hard to understand. Yeah. I mean, many, almost all jobs in life, right, are not as quite as glamorous as people think they are. Yeah. Including, by the way, AI and ML. Yeah. (laughs) Themselves are not nearly as glamorous when you're in them as you think they are. And it's, it's a fine line, right, between, well, you don't want to make it sound really boring. Yeah. You still want people to join in our field. But I do think, yeah, I could imagine there must be a lot of misconceptions. But it's interesting that you're telling me that even someone, you said one example would be someone who's doing sociology, who's done some research, so they understand statistics, and they're interested in data, and they're talking to you about AI and ML? Like, or, or is it just they think these skills could be reusable? I, I, no, the, the sociology person, she was talking mostly just about the original data analytics stuff. I just see this a lot in new grads uh, or Got recent it. grads who think that the advanced methodologies and nomenclature they see in their classes is what they should pepper their resume with those buzzwords. And they think that that's what they're going to be doing in their day-to-day. Like, you're not going to be doing that much NLP because at Ironclad, even though you think you might, because we partner with Google on their NLP system, right. like we outsource it. Like, you're not going to be doing that. It's not, we're not, we don't have an in-house machine learning research wing, you know? So that's kind of the expectations that I wanted to set. Ah, uh, womp womp. Everyone's going to yeah. be like, wow, well, there goes my desire to work in legal tech. <laughs> It's still really fun, but there's other problems to work on, you know? Yeah. Okay. And I I agree, by the way, having taken like, I I think you made me think back to my graduate school data mining classes where, you know, it's a lot of K-means clustering and like, it was more about how difficult is the technique rather than how useful is any of this. Yeah. And my other recollection about the field from a distance until you're in it is you also think my view of it is like you, you might you might think like you're this explorer, like archaeologist, like you learn these advanced techniques because no one knows what's in the data. Like we just got to sift through it until we find this gem that's hidden in the data. If I just took, you know, if I cut out these features out of the data and then, you know, kind of look at it from these axes and cluster it in this way, we will uncover that, yeah. you know, people with, first name starting with J who have two siblings of the same age are like guaranteed to end up in a field in data. Like that, that's what you think you're going to find. Right. Yeah. But it's not. (laughs) Yeah. I I think it's a good set of tools to have. Like school teaches you a lot of theory and it, it gets you to a place where you know enough to be dangerous. But in reality, and at least in startup life, you don't have, all the time in the world to tune your clustering model. You have to just get something out so that a decision can be made from that data and can be, again, easily understood by your stakeholders. So it's like mostly finding that 80-20 approach. And then if you have time, 
you can use your advanced statistics knowledge to do an exploratory analysis. You know how to do that, but you have to figure out and have the maturity to understand when that's appropriate and when that's not. Yeah. And I like the archaeology metaphor. I always talk about my job as not an archaeologist, but as a painter. Like I have this blank canvas and I have a lot of paint on my, on my easel and I have to figure out what kind of insider analysis that I want to paint for my audience in the most digestible way. That's actually, you know why that's a good analogy too, is, um, you know, Michelangelo famously was both a skilled painter and a skilled sculptor, right? And yeah. he had this famous line that he preferred sculpture. He thought that was by far the superior art form because God already had the the sculpture underneath. He was just removing the pieces of marble until he uncovered it. And he thought painting was like a much lesser art. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's actually the, anal the analogy I was trying to make, which is the, the there's this belief that in the data set, there is a gem inside it. Like, and I think mm -hmm. that's just wrong. And then what you're doing is saying like, look, it's, there's no, there's no magic inside. We have to paint some picture based on what's here and not keep digging to hope to find this, you know, mm -hmm. kind of magical insight that will just change yeah. the world. Yeah. Like every data analyst will have some insight if you give them an open data set, like you'll find <laughs> something. It's just like, it's not going to be like a magic bullet, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that's what they gave us in grad It was like all this income and bureau labor statistics data. And then it was just like, ah. go, you've learned all these techniques. Go present me something interesting. And it's like, you have this belief because it's school that there must be something in here that is like, I have to find the good answer. There can't just be answers. There has to be like the special answer that he wants yeah. us to find. <laughs> and there isn't. The, it's funny you bring up the labor bureau of labor statistics because as part of my econ major, I did a lot of econometrics and worked with a lot of econometrics data sets. And that was one of them <laughs> or from Fred or the federal. I mean, it's one of the great data sets in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. It's actually yeah. just a, a, yeah. a very impressive data set yeah. across the board. Yeah, love it. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So, okay. On that same note, would you recommend someone who's getting into the space to, to be data team of one? Or to work to start their career in a much larger data organization where they can, you know, learn from their peers within their company. So for me, I, I'm a really like aggressive go-getter personality, and like I will chase down the people that I need to, to, to get an from. answer and to learn from. And like I'm not shy about setting up time with people or asking certain questions or looking dumb in a meeting <laughs> or you know just like live writing notes down. Some people may not thrive in that kind of environment. I think going to such a big public school, you had to be gritty at going to Berkeley. You had to be gritty and, you know, not elbow your way out, but, you know, kind of shine through and fight for what you wanted. And I think that applies really well to startups for people that kind of want to just have really good best practices and learn from somebody more senior than them. I think the latter is a really good option. There's really like no wrong path. You just kind of have to know what environment do you thrive in? I personally really like the being thrown in the deep end environment because the learning curve from there is just insane. The The trajectory from and the slope of learning is something I find really exhilarating. Some people might not like that. So it's more like looking inward to see what kind of person you are. Yeah. I mean, I think the... you you should always bias towards wherever you can get the highest rate of learning. And the potential counterpoint, and the reason I asked was, 
if you are truly a data team of one, which is what you were, the situation you were in, and I've met so many people who are data teams of one, yeah, is you may or may not be appreciated and, and measured correctly because mm-hmm. your stakeholders and management chain have no ability to, to calibrate, right? Exactly. And so that can be frustrating. I've run into this. So yes, I totally agree. A way I've countered this is to work really loudly and build up your internal social capital at the company you work at. Like make sure Mm. people understand how important your work is and like really illustrate that the dashboard you made for all of the customer success organization is saving hours every week that customer success managers don't have to, you know, make their own data sets and present usage data to their customers anymore. Before I came, like, for example, they're using Amplitude to, like, CSMs are using Amplitude and making custom charts for every customer. There are many, like, dozens of customers per CSM every Mm -hmm. quarter. They would take three hours to, like, munch through their data and cut out bad data. And they were, like, manually looking through. It It was a mess. So I created a dashboard where... Any CSM could log on and <laughs> pick their customer and get a whole slew of product usage data organized in a beautiful dashboard. Under the hood, they like didn't know how this was happening, but like there was little old me writing code, cleaning all of like the base data. It's just like a really messy process. And I like sh- we had show and tells at Ironclad, and I showed them like this is what's going on. This is what the result is. This means you don't have to spend hours munging through this data anymore and visualizing this. Now it's very easy and walk up usable. So I think it's really important to show your work and then kind of advertise it in Slack and stuff. But And then it kind of led to like a flywheel effect, like, oh, Jessica's now the data person at Ironclad. That is sure. her brand. And then it kind of looks like... I think this is your economics degree showing through where, you know, yeah. most people don't realize that you know, we understand it in the open marketplace, right? That like the reason people pay for a product, whether it's a shoe or software is because it adds value to their lives by, you know, saving them time or whatever. And, but internally, usually in a discipline, people don't think that way, right? They, they just say, is this good work? Right. Yeah. And that's why you're, it's helpful to have management that is of your discipline so that they can help you say, yes, this is good work. Right. And you just jumped right to the next step, which is to say, is this valuable work? Yeah. Like, valuable work. Valuable work trumps good work. <laughs> yeah. I did, I like searched for the problem. There wasn't anyone telling me that we need this. It's kind of like build a faster horse. Everything. It's like, no, right. we need a car. I saw this. I saw our, how many hours are being wasted. This is month three of me in my job. And I was like, wow, we need to automate this ASAP. So fulfilled that need and kind of, I was like, oh, wow, this was successful. I need to keep listening to the ground and seeing what other data needs are out there that are impactful and will save people time. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good, that's useful advice for everybody. Just if you can spend more time demonstrating your ROI to you, your users, your company, your customers, your stakeholders, et cetera, like the better off you will be. Yeah. Eventually people will start talking about it and then your manager will hear. And then that's honestly why I got my first promotion is that customers were talking about it and our internal stakeholders. Cause I was making customer dashboards as well and analysis and custom exploratory 
data science stuff. So more and more people started talking about it because, again, I'm a strong believer that you have to build your brand, especially when no one really knows what data analytics team of one really means. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is the, the, the so, so I think maybe that would be the, if I had to write the, 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 the flow chart, right. Is if you're comfortable self-promoting, let's call it. And, and I mean that in the good way. Yeah. Then, then your first job in data could be as a solo data person. And if not, it might be helpful to be in an organization that can, you know, kind of foster your work and help you grow. Yeah. And build your confidence a little bit from there. Yeah. Yeah. My sister, my other sister, Sabrina, is thinking of, you know, in the future, does she also want to go to a startup? Mm -hmm. And she's really scared of being like a team of one if it ever comes to it for product marketing, if if she has to apply to that. She thinks like, oh, there's always more you can learn or I can always learn more. I'm not ready yet. And I was like, do you think I was ready when I started? It's more about when you do land on the ground, how do you kind of scramble and make impact and find the right levers to pull to show your value? So I think it's more in that. I think, I think you hit in life and career, like there's, you hit plateaus generally. And, and uh, th- that's where that feeling, I think, comes from from rationally so to so to speak which is you whether because of the organization that you're in or the field or you or you know some combination of all sorts of variables you'll hit like a growth plateau and one of the ways to get out of that is to find a coworker or a boss that or a tech lead, you know, to t- take your pick of what you mean, what I mean by the, you know, the, the person that can help you unlock the, you know, the, w- what's preventing you from, from graduating up, so to speak. I definitely believe that, you, you know, there are things you can learn from others. <laughs> You're, yeah. Not everyone she, can just be totally like, oh yeah, I just read blogs and I somehow just get unbelievably good at this. Although some people yeah. are autodidact, right? And so it, it's doable. Yeah. 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 And one of the things I always tell people, I, I haven't thought about this from the perspective of data, which is why I was asking you. But people often ask me as engineers, you know, should I go to a startup? And I mean, obviously I have to, you know, I'll speak my own book. I'll, I would say broadly speaking, obviously the answer is yes. But, but the way I tend to frame it is a startup will give you a lot of work to do, a lot of scope, right? So you, you, you should be able to do a lot more than you do at a big company. But it matters who your coworkers are, who your, you know, the other engineers are, and will you learn from them? And that, I don't know that it's strictly better to be at a startup full of people who don't know what they're doing uh, because then you in the day-to-day will not necessarily become a better programmer. You'll just be doing a lot of work, right? And there's there's been kind of doing something and practicing to become better at something. And, and so that's why I was thinking about this from the perspective of data where a lot of data people are in a, like in a way, a lonely bunch in their company, which may explain why Data Angels is so big is that you need the guild, right? You need something outside your company to, you know, kind of bring you the, yeah, the growth. You're, you're outsourcing your senior folks that you may not have at the startup. You have a community to draw from. And this exists within locally optimistic Slack channels totally. as well. And DBT Slack channels, they're all great for me to just 
peruse casually what other data leaders are talking about and what they value. But yeah, I totally agree with you. Like for <laughs> when I was starting at Ironclad, I didn't know what a dim table was <laughs> or the proper <laughs> way to name something. I don't know. Like there's things that I look back that led to a lot of technical debt that because I didn't know the best practice, I didn't have anyone to learn from. It's kind of like I, I look back and I'm like, ooh, I wince. <laughs> but at the same point, it's like at the same time, I did learn from those mistakes. And because they're so emotional I know not to like do it like I learned from my own mistakes and it's hard to kind of really have a lesson sink in until you've done the mistake yourself so I fail fast and that was earlier in my career I'm still you know failing in other things I, it's, I, it's always a thing <laughs> but you know like the basic things that I didn't have like a mentor to learn from too much I learned eventually so yeah, yeah this is the we're all failing all the time in some ways. And the key is to like the ratio of failing to doing and to succeeding has to be the right ratio, sure. but you're okay. absolutely right. Everything's oh, fine. <laughs> everything's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> well, what, what are the kinds, actually, I'm going to cl click on that for one second. Like what are the kinds of problems, like difficult, you know, like whether that's bugs or, or issues you had to fight through a year ago or, you know, two, two years ago, almost for you now. And now, like, what, what's the difference? And, and I, we could put this in other words, like, what do you think you were trying to tackle that you had to learn and solve when you were a junior analyst versus now being a you know senior analyst? It's a good question. There's so many. <laughs> I'm trying to like figure out what should I prioritize. Early on, it was data quality and it still continues to be data quality. But when I started, there was just like no definitions there was missing data on like how you define a customer there was just no it was the wild west with how analytics at ironclad was defined so my first year was spent defining main like dim tables or setting processes for scheduling queries or creating dashboards that just showed general customer overviews things that just zero to one data at ironclad mm -hmm. And, you know, figure out what best practices those are to, like, scale myself still as a one-person team. Now, it's, it's, that stuff still carries over. But now I'm thinking, like, how can I unleash the power of data to have people self-serve themselves on data analytics and not have me be the bottleneck so much? So I'm going to be investing in tools next year as one of the things to tackle this, like DBT and maybe Looker Mode or Tableau, one of those. First, need to hire an analytics engineer to help me <laughs> get everything in order. But two is also with the addition of our new director of data and BI is we're going to implement data governance councils. And I'll let you know how that works out, but I'm optimistic about it. It's like setting up those processes where data becomes more of a conversation and I guess, more widely accessible to all of Ironclad as opposed to me just holding the keys to the kingdom. Because I do think you will ask better questions once you see the data in front of you as a business person as opposed mm -hmm. to just having Jessica or Kelly, my coworker, do the data finding for you. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. And yeah. I mean, I was asking, you, you, you've, you've laid out a whole like, 
company strategy as opposed to like day-to-day problems, which is what I was asking, but, but, but all of which I agree with, I agree with all of that. No, 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 no. I think what you said is very interesting, which is that when you protect the system, the problems are yours, right? And when you're going to start exposing more of the system to your company, then the things that, you know, on a Tuesday morning, you have to debug, suddenly it'll be someone else who might have to debug it. And the way that fire is going to spread will be very different. It's ultimately necessary, I think, for us as a company. So we'll need to, that'll be a huge point of growth that I'm really excited for in the next year. So I think that'll still continue that high data at Ironclad growth curve or slope, I guess, as you want to say. But do you find that yeah. you're, like, think of today, since we're having this conversation at the end of a work day, end of a work week, no mm-hmm. less. There must have been some some problems this week, the, today, like the things that you've hit. Yeah. Are they similar to the ones you hit two years ago is my point. Like if the Jessica of the world before you knew about, you know, what a dim table was. Yeah. The bugs you hit, the issues you hit, the things you had to learn. How different are they than the issues you hit today? The debugging stuff, honestly, not that different. Like it'll be like, why is this table not really updating with their correct data? And you have to figure out, oh, the schema changed a little bit. So you have to go back and change the schema because there's this new column in this new table. So honestly, debugging-wise, not that much different. The types of problems that I work on day-to-day strategically have definitely changed. Like, for example, I will now I'll be tasked with doing some sort of like cluster analysis to see if I can group customers by similar feature usage patterns as opposed to the segment, like the sales segment that they align to. And back when I was Jessica two years ago, I was not really working on strategic data science problems. It was mostly just like, get this dashboard up and get people to adopt it. (laughs) So I have more of those types of strategic opportunities for data science. Another example is like, how can we predict churn and renewal time? It's like an always ever present problem. Like, how do you predict it? Like, how do you predict customer health? I think that's a good way to think about, you know, there's the first you have to know what is going on before you can kind of think about what if. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that, again, that zero to one establishment year was really good is just like what data do we have take note of you know how do you get data into BigQuery who do I need to talk to mm-hmm. who do I need to spend engineering time with and now that I have a really good foundational understanding of data at Ironclad like how can I take it forward so what do you think is especially since you work with so many people outside of your company right like you've built yourself this network that is you know, significant. What is unique about doing data at Ironclad or or at any other company as far as you know, versus what is effectively the same? That if I transplanted you at, you know, at our company or, you know, any other company, it would be 80% the same. Yeah. I don't have experience at other companies, so it's hard to say, but I have talked to a lot of one person data analytics data teams and they are concerned with very similar things like how do I get the right tooling set up at my startup how do you define those you know dim tables and processes for editing those tables and 
updating them? How do you set up some sort of career structure for data? Like if, if it's just you, how do you make sure you're progressing along your mm-hmm. career? Life? Like these basic foundational things I hear a lot of. What makes working at data, being a data person at Ironclad, what makes that special is that I have really like a long I have a lot of slack in terms of what I can work on. Like if I see an interesting product-led growth initiative, that was a new team we spun up. And I know every team needs data in some respect. I can ask if I can do product analytics for them to inform mm-hmm. their strategic outcome. Like there's no good reason for them to say no. So there's a lot of fluidity with what I can work on and what I dictate as important and good for my. I have never run into any aspect of like, no, you can't work on this. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, no, for sure. And and that's a good company culture to have to not say this is your box and don't exit your box, right? Yeah. Uh, Something startups are generally, thankfully, good at. Yeah. It's, It's the, I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get at, if I can, is independent of the journey of ironclad, which like your journey in data is effectively ironclad's journey in data, right? I'm trying to isolate out what is the company's journey in that and the data stacks and the tools from the, the, what is the growth from being, you know, not in the data industry to being a, you know, kind of junior person in the industry to being senior to, to somebody being principal, right? People always want to understand this question, especially outside of management. Everyone understands managerial growth. And after decades, we understand engineering, like software engineering or mechanical engineering. We understand what it means to go from junior to, you know, distinguished engineer. And, and I'm trying to get at the same essence for, for analytics, right, and data. I was like, is, is, if, if, for example, are you now working on building experimentation? And is that the difference between junior and senior or senior and principal? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's hard. I'm still trying to figure that out. I I think for senior versus junior. Junior, you're kind of told the problem you're supposed to work on. And I think for senior, you you actively look out and prioritize what is most important for the company. Right. And does that make sense? You don't need to like... Totally. Yeah. Um, I think this is kind of what Ben and I were talking about in our conversation, actually. Yeah. Right? This idea that you identify larger problems on your own that the company needs to solve, right? So you're, you're, right. Like, you're doing problem identification at some level. Exactly. So from my personal experience, I mean, every year and quarter, we update our planning and our priorities on the product team. And I want to make sure that the stuff that I'm working on directly impacts those priorities. And if, if there's no project going on that affects those priorities for our product team, how can I work on something that will help? illuminate some insight about, you know, our time to activation and how are we doing in, in, in terms of product led growth and all these things. So it's looking, it's always, it's being proactive as opposed to reactive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good, that's a good metric by which to kind of frame someone. You tend to, I tend to think about it also as scope right? Which is like, do you, but data is so broad in scope almost on day one, right? You were helping 
arbitrary teams inside Ironclad almost from the beginning. You had infinite stakeholders. Yeah, uh, exactly. Usually you kind of try to reduce people's stakeholders until they're ready uh, to, to kind of handle more. My, my CMOs are like, Jessica, you're the most over-leveraged person at Ironclad because everyone wants data <laughs> in some way. So I was like, haha, LOL. <laughs> but it's true. Show me the money. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's always like, nice to hear you're the most over leveraged person in the company. That's, like, that's it was a, a very, joke. It, it felt good. I put it on my wins list. I do have a wins list that I look back yeah. on and use for promotions, for example. And I think everyone should do this. Whenever something's good said about you, either in person, on Slack, over Zoom, screenshot it, whatever, put it in. So <laughs> that was one of the things that early on. We have a public wins channel at our company, which is, but that's, and we, t- we, we tend to put shout outs to people in there all the time, but yeah. that's a good yeah. point. Like you could probably give a lot of advice on just self, self career management, independent of data. I ended up making all about data, yeah. but really I feel like yeah. if I were to read back through what we said today, it'd be a lot about just, just straight up career management. Yeah. I mean, I think all of us in some way early in our career or throughout our career are kind of obsessed with progressing at the same way that you want to and that you envision. So I've thought a lot about this. And again, goes back to the personal branding stuff. Uh-huh. So one of the interesting things, if you're, when you're someone who's like, as you say, over, over leveraged, and I mean that in the good way and also the, the tough way, right? It's just like you're over, yeah. people are over indexing yeah. on you, right? You're a sign- yeah. significant point of failure in the company. Mm-hmm. And you have all these stakeholders, as you talk about, right? You're, you're trying to enable as many stakeholders as possible, and you want to make sure they see the value that you're providing. How do you manage the switching context that must be happening all the time for you? That's a good question. I don't know how I manage it because <laughs> like, there's not really a tactical good answer for you. I just kind of do. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> like, usually, I mean, I'll tell you just, I, I'm really obsessed with my calendar and I try to like block similar things together and try to batch similar conversations all together. So if I am focusing one day on clustering or North Star metric forecasting, like I will try to center the similar conversations all around the same time. So I don't have to do too much context switching in one day. One day I can't do that. It's just like, sometimes I just roll with it. But generally as a, as a strategy, I do try to batch and set up work sessions that are where I focus on just one thing. You batch by problem domain, not by kind mm-hmm. of stakeholder? Yeah, problem domain. Like if it's a customer dashboard day, I'm going to build like two dashboards for two different customers in one day. Like it's this similar work happening in a day. And then like my one-on-ones, I try to tell people and try to schedule them like all right after each other or one-on-one so that I can have as much time to focus on the thing I'm working on that day and what, what I want to accomplish that day. So. On any given day, again, since you spent the majority of the last two years as the Tata team of one, on any given day, there's a decent coin flip chance, right? That you get a, an urgent interrupt. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so how do you, do you have any tricks for what I'll call saving your personal state? And, you know, when you have to go pencils down to solve an urgent interrupt, so that you can get back to what you were doing. And this is a problem everyone faces. I, I don't expect you to have a magical answer, but I'm curious. Like what my strategy is when I do have this strategy yeah, or those like, interrupts? Well, you're, you're, you know, you give yourself all this time to go focus on something that's like, you know, mentally deep and 
a lot of state that you have to put in your head, right? Of like, oh, this dashboard's going to work this way with the data of this model. And, and then an urgent interrupt occurs. I try to time box the amount of time I spend on that urgent interrupt. Like if I have three hours from two to five that I'm time boxing to work on one thing and someone at 2 p.m. is like, or 2.30 is like, well, drop what you're doing. This is urgent, which doesn't happen that often, to be honest. I will time box on most an hour to work on that, see what I can get done. Most of the stuff resolves, honestly, in an hour. See what I can time box right now. <laughs> Some problems Try just go, go away on their own. Some of it, sure. If I need to still work on that thing that I originally set up that two to five block on, I'll try to work on it from, I don't know, three to five. And at the end of the day, you know, sometimes out of working hours, I will have to like spend more time debugging something. But that's honestly better for me because I'm uninterrupted at night. Like I can just focus and not worry about, oh my God, like I have another thing that I need to get done. I need to get done. I need to like finish it by today. I told myself I'd finish it by today. So sometimes I, I mean, this is honestly more rare, but you know, once every couple of months, I'll have those debug nights, you know, for a couple of days, but honestly, not too often. I don't have too many urgent requests because I haven't given that keys to the kingdom yet data at Ironclad, which eventually this will happen. I need to, like we're developing a ticketing system now that whenever that there it is. you have it, yeah, it will happen. But again, that's what my director of data and BI is going <laughs> to help me with. Yeah. It's see, this is a, in a team of one, some of these things are really life and death, right? And, mm -hmm. and so in engineering organizations, we have all sorts of culture already built in, right? We can't interrupt everybody because it would like the, the context, which cost in programming is so high. Right. And so we solve for that, right? We create a DevOps rotation and, you know, like only one engineer is supposed to be interrupted. Everyone else can effectively ignore any fire that occurs and, and you don't have that luxury or at least I don't have up until a recently. <laughs> yeah. Up until yeah, recently, but even, you didn't have that even, luxury. even now I'm still taking on the burning stuff because I'm sure you are. Um, she's still onboarding kind of, yeah. she's still a junior engineer. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm still pulled in, but again, we'll, we'll be growing the team and developing a ticketing system. So hopefully some sort of rotation once everyone's fully on ramped. Yeah. I, I think it's, even though you're not, you know, necessarily doing deep, you know, magical ML, k-means clustering, et cetera, on a day-to-day -day basis in data, as we said, like that's, that's a, somewhat of a myth. It's still cognitive work, right? And, and I think I could easily see a lot of people flounder by not, when they're small teams, when they're teams of one or two, because they, they don't realize that they're just living in the interrupt and they're actually very unproductive outside of that because there's just not enough focus time, right? People don't manage yeah. their calendars as carefully as you do. <laughs> totally. And so you're in a productivity vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really try to be strict about saying no before when I started early in my career, it was really hard to say no. So I would just, mm -hmm. you know, say yes to all these meetings and at weird times that are in, in my blocks of like, do not schedule <laughs> uh -huh. times. But now I think that's another thing about a senior versus junior anything is saying the ability to feel confident saying no. Also, you'll find that it, it moves in two directions. It, you become more comfortable saying no. And yeah. people start thinking your time is implicitly more valuable. And so we'll exactly. be less likely to ask, which is a very yeah. weird. So it's that it, it combines, you know, a multiplicative effect, multiplicative yeah. effect. 
Yes, yes. They're like, Jessica, I know you already have a ton on your plate, but <laughs> can you help yeah. me with this? And I have to like say, no, it, you, you're right. I do have a ton on my plate. Yeah. <laughs> so, and yeah. By the way, the, the, the end version of this is very interesting because as CEO, they, they, they think your time is infinitely valuable. And so no one thinks they can book you. And then the corollary is that you could, any meeting you roll into has a significant effect. Right? Yeah, it's more And so formal. you can use that to your advantage over time as well. And be like, well, it's I'm going to choose It's a good piece of advice. <laughs> I like it. It's like I'll my, keep that in mind. <laughs> my presence on its own is like meaningful. Yes. And yes. suddenly people will behave differently. A decision will get made this time. Yeah. You know, all You're, that kind of stuff. You are so privileged that I am in your presence. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, exactly. you know, as it happens, if it, listen, you have to, you have to, lean into certain things because you can't resist them. So you have to lean into them. Well, Jessica, now that you've made it and, and I'll kind of finish with this question for you. It's like, so you built yourself all these, you know, you kind of self-made your, you know, your, your way into this, into the field. And then you, 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 you kind of built your own network for mentorship to get to where you are now. What do you think is missing to help you go from, I'll, I'll keep, I'll make it explicit, like senior to principal, you know, kind of analyst. Like, what do you think, staff, whatever the term is these days. Do you think the resources exist in the world? Because it feels like there's a lot going on to help people get in, right? There's, there's, you know, you and others have done a lot to kind of create an environment where like you can break into this world, right? What about really growing in it? Like, because I don't think there's a lot of principal analysts in the world. Yeah. I think the executive level has to leave space for that and really understand the value of that kind of career progression within data analytics. Like I tried to do my best to let my managers know like, Hey, this is like the career ladder my original manager and I came up with, but are we following it in my most recent promo cycle? No, we were following a software engineer career ladder and there wasn't that same necessity to like look at it because I'm the only person in this ladder right now like going through this so there's not even a necessity it's amazing. to even ladder of it. one yeah so like there wasn't even a necessity yet but I think as we put in more heads this stuff will need to be more encoded and structured that we will have to use like really respect that data analytics career ladder and have it very clearly defined it's not it shouldn't be an afterthought because honestly for like a until recently, it still is pretty much an afterthought. Like we know kind of that, you know, what senior versus junior look like, but is it explicitly followed? And are there real benchmarks to this as we see in the software engineering career ladder? Not yet. So having a sponsor and like that respect on the very like high level from management, I think is really important. Have it very clearly defined. So maybe that's my answer. That's a good, I mean, even I, even I struggle with that, trying to hire, you know, kind of even me thinking through what is principal. Mm-hmm. It's easy on managerial side, right? But it's, it's definitely harder for like, yeah. Junior to senior is, I think, broadly speaking, easy. Uh, to, it's obvious when you've seen the, the Delta, but principal becomes yeah. way harder to, to differentiate. What do you think the answer to that question is? <laughs> I think the default answer is something around scope right which is that you can influence a large manage data for a larger group of stakeholders right um where 
instead of 12 dashboards, it's 1,200 dashboards, and you've built the system that allows for that to happen. And I mean that as an individual builder. That's my default answer. And you know how to, you know, you fall into less of the traps that cause the failures, and, and you know, you can build a system that is, can, can be leveraged even more. But the thing where I'm less precise, but I think about a lot, is, is does the, are there specializations within data at that level? So does one become principal uh, data scientist in the sense, the truer sense of data science, right? Where it's, you're really an experiment builder and runner. And is that specialization a kind of principal role? Or, you know, do we integrate, do we put ML into our career ladder and say, okay, well, that's a specialization at a certain level. And so those are the skill sets that I wonder about, like, does that make you principal, right? When you go to put it in SQL terms, like, you know, you can go from writing a query to cleaning some data to writing window functions to, you know, eventually building, you know, much more powerful code that can do uh, a lot more. So uh, yeah, I think about it that way. Those are my two angles, but I'm, I'm not precise on the second one. And, yeah. You know. Those are also really helpful ways to think about it. I just, yeah, I don't have reads into that level yet because I'm always just thinking like, what's that next step? And I'm kind of like pushing that boundary specifically at Ironclad right now because there's no lead or, you know, right. principal data. So I'm like at each step, I'm kind of like pushing them to think about it. So haven't thought that far ahead, but yeah, no right answer. I think it's somewhat nebulous and you're right. And mm -hmm. so I, I like asking these questions because I don't necessarily yeah. have a perfect answer myself. Good to have a conversation about it from someone more senior. So cool. Especially if director of data, right? It tends yeah. to be the director of a very small number of people in most companies, leaving aside, you know, the Netflixes and the Spotify's of the world. And so yeah. if you're a director level person, but your managerial skills or your managerial scope is like a dozen people, a 20, what is it then? And it's like, it goes back to stakeholder reach, right? It's, it's can you build systems that scalably can work for lots of other people? Can you educate internally? Can you, can you make sure that fires are minimized in a way that is not just through, you know, negotiating with the humans, but also building systems that are more powerful? So I think, I think it's some set of those things, but we should probably build some kind of shorthand for like, <laughs> hey, here's a principle. I don't even know. I should go look if I see anything. I haven't seen a document that I like that describes it. This is a call to the data community to help us find one. Yes. <laughs> Whoever's yes. listening to this. Yeah, yeah. We'll pass this Let's on to the data angel community too. Yeah. Help us. Help us build a career <laughs> ladder that everyone agrees with. Because I think there, <laughs> yeah, there's more of them for data science and ML, but not, yeah, not analytics, which mm -hmm. I think we need. I'll talk to Tristan about it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know what you find out. We'll do. We'll do. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Jessica, this was a really, really nice conversation. So thank you yeah. uh, for thank taking you. the time. Thank you. This is a this is the most fun podcast episode that I've ever been a part of. Well, that's <laughs> so, yeah, very kind out. of you. I am still an amateur, <laughs> but I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, this is a great conversation. We'll do it again. You're, you're a natural board. Yeah, happy huh. to. <laughs> All right. Have Thanks. a good rest of your night then. Well, folks, until next time, this is The Sequel Show. Special thanks to Joe Stevens for our theme song and thanks to all of you for listening and supporting the show. 
If you haven't already, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts to get notified for future episodes. 